Good afternoon and welcome everyone to this Flinders University's Fearless Conversation. The topic today, climate science, weathering the storms of the future. This event is delivered as part of our Fearless Conversations series, which brings together a panel of industry leaders and Flinders University researchers to challenge current rhetoric and try and create fearless future. Now, my name's Jane Doyle. I'm from the Seven Network and I'm a journalist and also news presenter. And I'm delighted to be with you today to facilitate this discussion. We have an excellent panel to tackle what is a very big topic. Um, we have support for our fearless conversation from partners, The Advertiser, Seven News, Hither and Yon and Unisuper. Today, it's all about the science of climate change and how our weather patterns, our oceans and environments are responding to what is a very dynamic and changing world. Our expert panel will explore what the federal government's new climate change bill, which is committed to a 43% emissions reduction by 2030, will mean outside of parliament and politics. We'll also investigate how extreme weather events affect our, our community, our economy and industries such as agriculture. To begin with, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we meet on today. That's the Ghana people, and we pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. And we also would like to acknowledge the um, traditional owners of all the lands on which Flinders University operates. Now, we'd invite you to feel free to join the conversation on our Twitter using the Fearless Conversations hashtag. So on Twitter, it's not our Twitter, it's actually, well, it's not Elon Musk's yet either, is it, quite? But on Twitter anyway, using the Fearless Conversations hashtag. Now, let me introduce to you our guests for today. To begin with, Peter Natras, Manager of uh, the Future Industries in the Growth and Low Carbon Division of the Department for Energy and Mining. It's a big title. And it's a big job. Thank you, Peter, for joining us today. Next to him is Associate Professor Cassandra Starr from Flinders University's Climate and Sustainability Policy and Research Group. And we also have um, Malcolm Leesk, owner and director of McLaren Vale Winery Hither and Yon, South Australia's first carbon neutral certified wine brand, and also Flinders University's wine partner. Who knew universities had wine partners, but very sensible of them to do so. Welcome, Malcolm, and thank you for your support and also Pleasure. supplying delicious and unique wines to our live audience today. We're also joined by Dr. Graziella Miot da Silva, a senior lecturer at Flinders University, a coastal geomorphologist and oceanographer. And we're delighted that you could all join, of you, join us today. Some of you, a couple of you at very short notice. So good on you for joining us. Sadly, Rochelle Cooper-Kulkani, PMO manager at the Department for Energy and Mining was going to be joining us, but has unfortunately succumbed to one of the many viruses that is uh, spreading around the planet at the moment. Now, let's get underway. And first of all, Cassandra, can I speak to you and ask you to speak to us about the Albanese government's climate change bill 2022? It passed the House of Reps recently to great fanfare, but what will it deliver? So one of the interesting things I think about the, um, the climate change bill is that it um, delivers for the first time in a decade some legislation on which it provides some certainty for business, for industry and the community about the government's direction on climate change. There has been debate um, in certain quarters about whether or not the percentage, the 43%, goes far enough. Mm -hmm. um, the Greens were pushing for a 75% cut and the Teal Independents a 63% cut. What would you like? 
The science suggests that 63% is where we need to be. Mm -hmm. But I do think given the Greens and the Teal Independents have supported the legislation, and it looks like they'll support that through the Senate, means that they're confident that the government will commit to further ambition there. And I think that that's important as well for providing that certainty um, within the community and industry. Because there's always an interplay, isn't there, between the yes. politics and the policy. So you've got to get the policy right to get through the politics. There's no good having a bill that says 75% and it not getting through the House. Exactly. And as a policy theorist, the two are hand in hand. The politics and the policy are wed, whether we like that or not. Mm -hmm. How do you think this policy will be A, accepted by the public mm. uh, and B, will it have an immediate effect on their lives? I think it will be very accepted by the public. You know, we saw going into the election and in a range of studies over time, um, the Australian public's appetite for climate change action, um, particularly if we're looking at younger voters. Mm. Um, and it will have an impact on their daily lives, but exactly what that looks like yet isn't that clear. The, the legislation provides a signal to the community and to industry and business, but the way the legislation is constructed, what they do with that signal is largely up to them. Mm. It's going to be an interesting few months as it, as it goes through. Now, Peter, speaking of politics and policy, um, the South Australian government, the new South Australian government, is very much committed to green hydrogen energy, um, $593 million hydrogen jobs plan. We hear these mega numbers thrown around and these you know, names for these plans. Federal opposition, Peter Dutton, the opposition leader, has come out and urged a national conversation about the potential of nuclear energy. That old chestnut, I'm tempted to say. Um, pros and cons of these approaches, do you have an opinion? Well, I think the important uh, question that we have before us is how do we remove fossil fuels from you know, our economy? They're, in, they're entrenched in our everyday activities. And uh, we, we uh, become more and more energy intensive you know, as the years go on. And so we need all the energy we can get. Now, the question comes down to, uh, I suppose, along the lines of Malcolm, Malcolm Turnbull, <laughs> engineering and economics. Uh, at the end of the day, what we need as an economy to uh, prosper is, is uh, electricity that's at the right price, energy at the right price. Um, now, that's, there's an economic cost, but you also need to look at the environmental impacts. Mm. And we also need to look at the social impacts. Uh, what, what, is, what, uh, what is the community uh, uh, supportive of? So the development assessment planner in me, the town planner comes out and says, well, what how do we, uh, where do we put uh, these, uh, these big pieces of industrial plant? Uh, and how do we engage with those communities? Because the city is a big consumer of electricity. Um, and uh, Wyala and Port Augusta and Mount Gambier and all the towns in between. We need to work out what's the right type of technology that communities uh, accept that gets us towards the future where we don't make the same mistake that we've made in the past. Is hydrogen part of the answer? Uh, hydrogen's important part of the, the answer. Um, when we look at the use of hydrogen, so green hydrogen, the, the state government's made it really clear that it's about 100% renewable hydrogen, so made from renewable energy. Again, it's about choices. Um, and it's about where we apply that hydrogen uh, to the highest and best use. So um, 
that, that within the global economy, um, what we need to look at doing is how we again remove uh, fossil fuels from our industrial system. And that's where hydrogen plays a really important role in uh, displacing coal from steel manufacturing, fertiliser production. There's some areas, uh, so Michael Liebrick, who's uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, has a really interesting hydrogen ladder where he shows where hydrogen, you just can't replace. It's, it's the only technology or the only fuel you can use. That can deliver. That can deliver. Uh, and I think that's where we need to um, apply the right technology to the problem. Question, I don't know who's best to answer this, but um, just as a consumer, there mm. seems just in the last little while to be an enormous push away from natural gas, interesting term, natural gas, uh, in the current context. Um, so we're all being encouraged to electrify our homes, not to have gas heating, not to have gas hot water, not to have gas cooking. Um, is that because gas is always going to be an emitter? You've got the gas industry talking about green gas. Is there such a thing? Uh, over to me, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Is there such a thing as green gas? I can comment to that as well. Um, the push that we've seen away from gas, um, there was a particular narrative from the industry for some time that it was kind of the, the gateway fossil mm. fuel towards decarbonisation and reducing our emissions. Whereas um, a lot of environmental economists and people working in energy policy have always argued that actually it, it's still a relatively high emitting fossil fuel. So it's better than coal? But yep. it's not as good as hydrogen and certainly not mm. as renewable sun, yes. wind. Any others that I've missed? Nuclear. We didn't talk to the nuclear option. Oh, again, it's, it's, there will be uh, some applications, some jurisdictions such as Europe or the like, where nuclear... Is already in place. ...is, is, is potentially the right uh, mm. technology for them. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, it will come down to communities. Uh, and uh, we have an abundance of solar, wind, other resources. And so when you look at the, the, the wealth uh, that South Australia has in this, uh, you know, the opportunity for us is that we have what other areas don't have. Mm. We have this amazing overlap of really high wind uh, uh, potential with solar, mm. um, globally significant resources. Now, to leave that undeveloped and to follow, pursue other technology um, is going to be less economic. So better to sell our uranium to people who want it, hmm. better to sell our minerals, turn that, keep that turning, but use renewables to forge the hydrogen path and replace our reliance on coal. That's right. But again, in consultation in, and true engagement with the uh, Aboriginal uh, hmm. nations, um, you know, when we are, uh, you know, they are hosting us upon their land. Uh, and so we see a lot of progress in the mining sector uh, in, in, in uh, improvements to their practices. So again, we need to um, not repeat the mistakes of the past, but definitely look at the best application for those resources that we have mm -hmm. to fix a specific problem in the energy system that may not be here, that is, is potentially in Europe or other safe jurisdictions where as a community, we know that that material will be safely handled um, and, um, and managed effectively. Mm. One of the, the largest problems, I think, with nuclear, if we look at the Australian context, keeping aside the question of the economics and you know, where it fits in terms of its life cycle and fossil fuel emissions, is actually about social licence. Mm. It's about whether communities accept that as an energy option.
And when you talk about Indigenous people with the history of Maralinga, and when you talk about what's going on in Ukraine at the moment with uh, nuclear power plants being attacked by whoever it was that bombed them, um, you've got all sorts of issues and we can't even agree on where we should put uh, a nuclear waste dump. We're happy to have it stored in hospitals on North Terrace because we don't know about it, but we're not comfortable to know about a facility that goes in somewhere else. And the social licensing around that has been very interesting. And that's right. And, and this is where this this period that we are in, this this challenge that we have set ourselves, mm -hmm. <laughs> we've created. We've created this problem um, for engineers and problem solvers. This is an amazing time to be an engineer. An amazing time to have to be uh, creating new technologies. And when we, we look at the, we're racing to solutions. We, we, you know, the science tells us that we're not moving fast enough. Mm. Um, and we need to innovate our way out of this problem. Uh, and when we look at the nuclear question or the hydrogen question or the like, it's the, the speed at which these sectors innovate to bring down that cost, to, um, uh, minimise the the negative impacts of their technologies. Um, they all have impacts. Mm, yeah. um, and so th the race will be won by uh, the technologies that, that have the least impact, that deliver us the energy we need when we need it, and there won't be a single technology. No, it'll be a grid, won't it? Yep. It'll be a combination. Let's go to the coast. Okay. <laughs> Graziella, this is your area of specialty. Um, Climate-related coastal risks are many and varied, rising sea levels, coastal erosion. Um, what do you see as the major issue for us in regards, we're an island nation, we're surrounded by the water. Um, what are the major risks we're facing as a nation from those things? So uh, some of the main risks are associated with sea level rise. Um, South Australia's sea level has been rising faster at a faster rate than the global average. I believe it's about four and a half millimeters per year. And we are going to face serious threats and we already are uh, as we move forward with uh, sea level rise. And that will bring uh, problems not only with coastal erosion, we are going to have to continue to invest on coastal protection, protection of infrastructure, housing, habitats, problems with uh, saltwater intrusion. That's something that it's going to, I see as one of the uh, main threats. Um, even protecting the infrastructure against uh, uh, salinization of, uh, of pipes, for example, that, that take the storm water uh, to, the, you know, to other places. And uh, we are gonna have to invest on that to keep that infrastructure as well. And uh, with further sea level rise, I believe that South Australia is projected to, to see a 50 centimeter sea level rise by mid-century. And that's pretty significant. So that, will, that means that Adelaide will more than double its risk for flooding. So events that are today one in a hundred years flooding events, now they're gonna happen every year. All the, all the issues that I see, uh, the projections by the Gordon Institute is in a high emission scenario, we are going to continue to see hotter uh, and drier days. Summers, more, yeah. yeah. More bushfires, especially in, winter, in spring, uh, which could be, uh, will affect crops and our energy use. 
And in my, in my research, for example, we see that drier climates and windier climates can change coastal landscapes. For example, coastal uh, dune fields that are, can be vegetated now, like what we saw in Kangaroo Island before the bushfire in 2020, most of the western island of King, uh, western part of Kangaroo Island is dune fields, sand dunes, and we don't normally see because they are vegetated by you know dense vegetation. Um, but after the bushfire, that vegetation was burned away, and we saw all that landscape exposed, and we all thought, okay, we, you know, the, 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 there's no more vegetation to hold that sediment in place, and the winds are going to blow, and those dunes are going to move inland further. And we've seen this happening before. We've seen this happening in the geological records. But luckily, it didn't. We, uh, after the, bush, the bushfire, um, we had a, a wetter year, um, less winds, and the vegetation came back quickly. So happy to be wrong, <laughs> but uh, but uh, we expect that bushfires, together with drier climates, windier climates, we'll see more of that kind of change on the coast as well. More, more arid, more deserts, and and changing landscapes and habitats. Is part of the problem that as a big island, we have a tendency to sitting on the edge of the Pacific and being the big nation, that we look at the little islands like Tuvalu and some of the smaller islands and say, oh, they're in real strife because they are now, they're losing fresh water, they're being inundated. Do we ignore how dire our coastal sea rise problems are at the moment? I don't think we, we ignore it. I don't think we do, but I think that there's definitely have to be more investment in research in that area, technology, um, and, uh, and, and we need more education as well. I think we need to train the new generation of researchers and professionals that we work in earth sciences and environmental sciences to help us tackle these, these issues. Um, I don't think we ignore it completely, but it's probably not as urgent as in some of those Pacific islands. They are already, they are facing inundation, flooding, and they don't, you know, freshwater management is a big issue there because of uh, saltwater intrusion. As a town planner, do we need to start looking at where we build on the coast? Uh, it, it's certainly been uh, a decade of discussion within the uh, Planning Institute has been uh, looking at that. Um, and, uh, you know, we see planned retreats, uh, you know, that uh, councils around the world are looking at planned retreats um, from, you know, moving back and uh, allowing the reinstatement of uh, dunes. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the sector to look to is the insurance industry. <laughs> Uh, because the insurance industry isn't ignoring this issue. No, they can't um, afford to. You know, so we go back to Hurricane Katrina um, and we saw whole areas that became uninsurable. Mm. Um, you know, and we see in America the, the, the insurance industry is really um, managing their risk as they would do and they, they put their science hat on um, and they look at their, their risks and they cost it and they price it. Mm. And then they work out what risk they'll take and what risk is someone else's. That's a very economic, it's a very blunt instrument though, socially, isn't it? We saw it at Grantham, where people got forcibly moved because of those floods. This was in Queensland, I'm sure many people will remember, and the town got shifted up the hill because of the devastating effects of that. But it's a fairly blunt instrument. Does policy not do better for that? 
And it, it's a really challenging area, the, the social aspect of this. Mm. When we look at communities who've had the experience of something catastrophic happening, like in Grantham, or if we look at a coastal flooding, for example, um, communities immediately after those events are, are very open to these discussions. But the further away we get from the catastrophic events, the more difficult it is to have those what are really challenging conversations and challenging mm. policy and planning questions about how you pick up a whole community and yeah. move them. Who pays for it? How do you yes. do it? I, I remember anecdotally, we were standing in Pompeii with my 12-year-old son at one stage and, I, and he was bored and I said, look, see that mountain, don't you understand what happened here? It exploded and then this happened and they all died and then they rebuilt and he said, well, how stupid were they, Mum? to rebuild in the path of a, an explosive volcano. You hear constantly in the tornado belts, you see it in the Northern Rivers at the moment, we will rebuild. Is that what we should be doing? Should we be rebuilding where we know there's a risk, a high risk? Well, I think there's a, a really tricky question there for this issue, but for a whole range of the issues that we're talking about, that um, the people who can afford to move do. do. Mm. And the people who can afford mm. to pay the higher insurance do. But you know we're at this period of really significant transformation in our economies and our societies. And we have to be really careful about not just entrenching existing vulnerability and marginalization in our communities, but creating new ones. Mm. Um, and that's a really difficult question for policy and politics. It certainly is. Now, people on the land, Malcolm, you've been sitting very quietly. People on the land are constantly managing risk. They're constantly having to juggle cost inputs versus what they're going to get back. And then the vagaries of the climate affect you. You've gone sustainable. So can you just quickly explain what are the sorts of practices maybe that you've had to change as a, a viticulturalist to make sure that you can be certifiable and sustainable? You're at McLaren Vale, let's clarify that. In McLaren Vale and, and Fleurio and also down the southeast. So we've got a spread. Mm -hmm. Well, there's all, a risk spread to start with. At least all in SA and it all actually starts with mindset, Jane. So we're a second generation uh, farming family business. So. Uh, I think you you have to sit down and acknowledge the things that you've done right in the past and wrong in the past, and perhaps the the mindset around you know being organic and emergent for us now is a lot stronger than what was maybe more around sort of survival um, and and sort of rapid growth. and And we had a movement uh, in our family business from what was essentially a mixed farm enterprise into certainly more viticultural based, um, you know, moving towards a monoculture. Mm -hmm. And now from a sustainability uh, perspective and, and also from a soil and a people perspective and balance and environment, we're now looking to turn that around. And I think uh, the things we're talking about today, you have to acknowledge the things that you weren't necessarily doing right. And, and now's the time to start moving towards that. So. Uh, from a sustainability perspective, we're talking about water. That's that's the most important thing that we have in our ecosystem for us. It's biodiversity. It is starting to tap into renewables. It is waste and recycling. Soil is what we get out of bed every morning for to, to build better soils, to um, 
grow healthier plants. To so can you give us a tangible example of what might have happened with a previous, your, presumably your dad or your mum's mm. family, when you were a youngster compared to what you do now? Is it about difference in irrigation, for example, the way you water your crops? Is it how you sense the soils? What, what's one of the tangible things that's changed markedly? I think for us, it, it's probably around uh, moving from a almost an industrial chemical uh, mindset um, with yield as the and productivity as the main equation for us to more of a quality and next generational uh, thinking around what we're doing. So uh, certainly uh, our main practice uh, at the moment and into the future is uh, is regenerative agriculture and probably what we were doing before was probably more traditional in, in that we were sort of trying to almost have a recipe around what we were doing each year. So you had consistency and you're probably taking out the vagaries of nature and we were producing uh, products for the market. Uh, now we're growing things as healthily as possible. Uh, we're trying to give back to the environment, to our community and um, be healthier around everything that we do. So um, certainly uh, regenerative is the main move that we have and that's obviously has soil and carbon building as a very strong base. Uh, water efficiency, you know, thinking about, you know, really do we need to be um, focused on growing so many things? It's okay to have um, biodiversity and natural corridors on our land and, and be planting lots of trees each year, not worried about so much uh, what's happening out in the marketplace. And as a business proposition, because at the end of the day, you've got to make a living out of it, mm. as a business proposition, is that working for you? you? You're producing perhaps fewer yields or lower yields, higher quality, you're not having to spray, you, the input costs might be down. So is it working financially, economically for you or are you, or are you still in, in sort of some sort of transition? I think we're happier, Jane. You know, if I, if I look at our, our business and, and the creativity and the health and the innovation that we have, particularly amongst our people and, and our communities, is that, you know, we're in a good place there. And, and if you are, I think that will naturally flow through to product and business. The interest that we're, we're getting currently is very much around our environment initiatives. So uh, we're opening new markets um, quite regularly now based on being certified carbon neutral, being certified sustainable, talking about story, you know, how are we growing? Why are we doing this? And, and that's very much with a future focus and that's also acknowledging that uh, we need to repair some of the things that we've done and 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 educate uh, along with that as well. There's some interest, sorry, I'll just to finish off that, there's um, some interesting research that 48% of alcohol buyers, which is your market in the US, say that their purchase decisions now are positively influenced by a company's sustainability or environmental initiatives. So you're seeing the market actually turn as well and you're following the market or are you leading the market? Which is it, do you think? I think uh, to some extent you just, you have to do what's really important for you. And then if the market gets drawn to that, you know, we talk about going for gaps and, and for us, that's very much our thread at the moment. We've started in the US market this year. Why? Uh, because my brother went over there on a on a tour talking about regenerative agriculture 
and created networks around that. And they really care about that, even though they're coming from essentially an industrial agriculture, big food mm. environment there. But there's a groundswell um, certainly that's really strong around that. We're seeing it probably more in traditional markets in Australia. Absolutely, uh, direct to consumer is um, very uh, aware of environment initiatives and and they want to feel good about who they're buying from and how the plants are being grown and and perhaps how healthy it is and and certainly buying local comes back into that as well and the footstep you're going to say peter yeah i think this is what's exciting about agriculture in south australia is mm. that we've got a long history of water efficiency um, we've got uh, a really we the 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 people that I know that are farmers have a really good connection with science through they've either been to Roseworthy or they 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 understand that agriculture modern agriculture has got a lot of science mm. um, and part of uh, what we need to be a resilient community uh, is is actually farmers who are connected to the science of soil connected to to what the solutions are that can help them to um, adapt their businesses over time uh, to how this climate will play out. Mm. Um, and I'd say as a consumer, it's pretty good to travel around and try biodynamic and try mm. organic mm. because it is, it is, uh, it is by having uh, a, a group of farmers that are trying different things that are, you know, that's what, that's how we get through this and we mm. prosper is it is through uh, everyone not being a sheep and following the same path. Mm. It's biodiversity. Or um, not just doing it because that's the way it's been done for three generations. Right. That's yep. right. So we're talking water. Now, McLaren Vale has a particular irrigation basin, but the Murray is a big issue mm. for South Australia. There's a bit of discussion around at the moment about the 450 gig that is needed for environmental flows for the bottom of the river, mm. buying water back from people who have licences at the top of the river. Is that a good solution for the Murray? Uh, well, not a water economist. No, no, I understand that. <laughs> but um, so I suppose that we've we've made water into a commodity. Yes. All right. So we've made it property, um, and and that's an unfortunate reality of uh, how our society works. Is that we've turned water into property, and now uh, I think that uh, the way that we uh, have people saying we need to get out of this is through sticking with that system and buying that water back within that framework because we've made it property um, and that's that's the, the the path that we've uh, made for ourselves so whether it, whether it is the best path it's not necessarily the, the the question it's the path that we now have to tread and we now have to find a way of mm. doing it it's sort of like we, we tend to as human beings, don't we? We've, we've developed all this science and we engineer our mm. living space. We're doing that down at Semaphore, Graziella. We're pumping sand. We're trying to replenish West Beach. Um, and then that gets abolished by the next government. We're yet to hear what Labor's plan is to fix coastal erosion on that particular beach. But are engineering solutions in your area of science around coastal management, are they, is that the solution or does that just add to the problem when we drag sand from one way mechanically and dump it somewhere else? Is there another way? Well, if we are living near the coast, if we are building too, too close to where the, the, the waterline is, yes, we are going to need to engineer our coast. 
how we are going to engineer that, then there are many answers. So sand replenishment is, uh, is, a, uh, is an activity that I don't see us moving on uh, or moving away from it anytime soon. We are going to continue to need to put sand in the, on the beach to maintain our sandy coast. And if we didn't do that, we wouldn't have a sandy coast here in the Adelaide Metropolitan Coast. Um, and if you look at other examples around the world, the, in the Netherlands, the, the Dutch, they are the world leaders, <laughs> the people we look at in coastal engineering. And they have to maintain hundreds of kilometers of coastline. Most of the country is going through erosion. They are below sea level, so they build dams. And, and the way they deal with their coastal erosion is via sand nourishment or sand replenishment. They put millions of cubic meters of sand every year to keep their, their beach and their dunes. Um, and they actually, even more recently, they, they added 20 million uh, cubic meters of sand locally. They call it that's the sand engine. And that's how they manage their coastal systems there. We don't see seawalls, uh, groins, breakwaters in the Netherlands, uh, in the Dutch uh, coastline. Um, now, having said that, is sand replenishment going to be the only solution? Is it going to be viable in the future with, with further sea level rise and flooding? Probably not. I actually have a PhD student looking into that at the moment. But I think in the future, sand nourishment alone will not be viable. And we might have to look into other alternatives, such as you know seawalls and, and things like that. But we know that these hard structures that we call these hard engineering structures, they tend to just transfer the problem downstream. So areas that are not facing erosion today, they might be facing erosion in the future if we block the sediment drift. But there are other solutions as well. Uh, more recently, uh, we are looking at um, nature-based solutions, which are ways to work with nature and have more natural processes to try and reduce wave energy and currents before they reach the, the shoreline. So including uh, restoration of aquatic environments such as kelps and mangroves and seagrass, which is what we are doing here in South Australia already. I, I work with several other colleagues on that. And, and also the, the new shellfish reef projects that are um, popular in Australia these days, or there are many reefs being built across the country. Here in South Australia, we have uh, the biggest one in the Southern Hemisphere, the Windara Reef, and there are plans to, for other uh, reefs to be built, but those reefs now, they, their main goal is to restore the native oyster uh, ecosystems. But these reefs can also be designed for shoreline protection. Not every reef will do that. Some reefs will do nothing to help with shoreline erosion. Some, will, some reefs will might even make it worse. So we need to, uh, to study the local coastal processes and do proper research before, constructions of, before construction of these reefs and design them for purpose so they can not only benefit the marine ecosystems but also try and reduce shoreline uh, erosion. So I think the future will be probably a combination of all of the above. Mm. So natural solutions integrated in with some physical ones. The biggest seawalls I've ever seen are in Japan. 
They're phenomenal. Mm. They're yeah. as tall as this room and they're just great big concrete blocks just plopped on the ground. They're ugly. Yeah. And <laughs> but that's they it, work because yeah. Japan's incredibly mountainous and has a tiny strip around the edge and they've got to protect it or else they're all living yeah. on Yeah. They don't always work. There no, are so many don't. places in the eastern US, for example, where they, they built seawalls and that wasn't that made the problem worse, as I was saying, and they had to go back and put sand back in the system. So they had to go back to to put sand um, anyway in, in, back there to, to protect the infrastructure. Um, yeah, and here in our, our metro coast, at least we are not facing the big southern ocean swells. So we <laughs> are true. in a protected gulf. So yes. it could be a lot worse. Um, I, I'm, you know, we see uh, the problems that they're facing in the East Coast, in Arabian, and and it's a big issue. And and um, and I think it's going to continue, and we are going to have to deal with it. Um, Malcolm, what's going to be for you? What poses the biggest threat to your industry, or to your enterprise in McLaren Vale from climate change? Is it is it temperature? Is it lack of water? What What's yeah, your biggest fear? There's two parts really, Jane, isn't there? So there's, there's climate change, which we're seeing as inconsistencies in seasons. So if we look at the last three or four, uh, our industry has been hit by frost, um, hail, bushfires, drought, and that's, you know, been across different regions. It's not just one region. So it's really hard to gauge that. And then in terms of a warming, you know, if we sort of start thinking about 1.5, you know, hopefully as the high marker, uh, you know, that brings in a strategy for us around uh, choosing slightly cooler climate regions or sites, um, certainly brings in uh, water availability and quality, um, uh, soil building and soil health biodiversity, um, but also around choosing the right plants for the, for the environment. So in our family vineyards, we're 22 varieties now, whereas you know, 10 years ago, perhaps we would have been seven or eight uh, varieties. These are varieties that will uh, perform better in a tougher climate. They're also making styles of wine that people really enjoy and they're great for our culture and our um, diverse cuisine here as well. So um, we have to start really about fit for the environment in terms of what we're doing and then just have lots of natural uh, balance around that, um, you know, with regenerative and sustainable as the key theme. So, and probably less is more. You know, our, our aim really in the future is not to do much at all on our properties. The, the lighter footprint is what we're aiming for and, and certainly I think that's what consumers are aiming for as well. Now, Cassandra, there's been a Cambridge University-led research project that's an international study that was released earlier this month arguing that somebody's in our pipes, catastrophic climate change outcomes, including human extinction, for goodness sake, there's a term that should put fear into all our hearts, are not being taken seriously enough by scientists and the world must prepare for a climate end game. Now, intriguingly, as I was coming here today on Radio National, the science show was addressing the work of James uh, Lovelock, who died last week at 103, and his Gaia theory, um, which is really addressing the fact that we just look at the earth in the wrong way. And he thinks that it's all too late, that we have 
past the tipping point for the earth. What's your take on that? Where do you sit? Well, I think there's two quite very interesting things there. Um, if we're looking at what scientists think about climate change, I think, you know, maybe the Cambridge study doesn't give them quite enough credit. If we look at the international, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so it's a, a group of scientists who, who guide our policymakers and give them the summary of the best consensus advice. And their most recent um, published reports, um, I think they're quite frank and make some disturbing reading. And most scientists would say, given the consensus nature of those, they're a bit conservative. So the rest of the science that's not just for that body, you know, does give us significant pause about what a significantly warmed climate future would look like. Um, and with regard to James Lovelock, I think um, the important thing about his hypothesis about the, the Gaia theory is that it re reminds us of the interconnected nature of all of the things that we do um, as people living on this planet, that single problems are often interconnected in ways that we don't initially see and think about. And I think that relates back really well to what Graziella was saying about the, the challenge with managing coastal environments, mm -hmm. that if you create a solution in this one place, it often pushes a problem further down the coast for someone else. And of course, Lovelock, for those who may not know or remember, I certainly wasn't aware of his name until I heard it this morning. Lovelock was the man who identified the, the ozone link to chlorofluorocarbons and had the apparatus to measure it and so solved the problem um, of the ozone layer, which was a dreadful problem, but had a relatively simple solution. I'd ask just as we, I think from time point of view, are going to have to finish up because we might have some questions from our audience, both online and elsewhere. Is that the big problem with climate change and the climate crisis, is that there isn't an easy solution like there was with the ozone layer um, problem, the ozone hole rather? As a, as a climate policy and politics person, my answer to that is partly yes. Um, you know, the ozone layer, it had very few um, sources of those emissions that were problematic. Um, so it was easy to identify how to close those sources. There was a, a ready-made solution and that industry cooperated very strongly with um, government scientists. So there was this relationship between the different scientist groups mm -hmm. which helped us solve that. But the emissions which lead to climate change or enhanced climate change are in every part of what we do in our lives. Mm -hmm. and they can't be sort of policed and closed in a very simple way. And the solutions are not singular mm. and they're embedded in you know, what we need to do moving forward. What about the issue around um, politics and people who continue to confuse whether there is, have we got past that, do you think, Peter? Are we policy-wise, politically, socially, as a community, do we accept that there is a problem or are we still enthralled to some degree by people who are determined to deny it? Well, I think the community at large is, you know, all the surveys show that the, the public's ready to move on. Um, the, the community um, have heard the same arguments for too long mm. um, and uh, they, they, want, uh, they want to see change. Um, and uh, we've seen that uh, occur. Now, um, 
it's 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 not going to be perfect. It's going to be a bumpy road, um, and uh, and there's no no quick fix in terms of you know getting to where we need to get to. Um, but it's not going to be just about a technology fix, um, you know, because you have to take communities uh, with with the decision makers have to take communities with them, uh, and so um, there's been. Uh, all of the disinformation has confused the public um, about what needs to be done. Uh, and that, that, is, that is a setback. That is a classic uh, delay tactic, um, is that we have uh, vested interests that it's in their interests for, for progress to be slow. Mm. Uh, and so putting uh, you know, uh, information out that uh, blurs the lines and, um, you know, that's... That's a tactical approach. Uh, and, and that is what we need to move beyond. Uh, we, have, uh, we have the technology, but we also know how to engage with communities because it is about uh, empowerment uh, and, in, and, and engagement and behavior change. Uh, and you know, when, when you started the conversation, um, you know, it was what's the impact of that legislative change. Um, I think that's, the, that's where people get to choose how they engage with this. Mm -hmm. They get to the, uh, choose what they do, but the important thing is to do something. Mm. The important thing is that we all have the ability to do something and that's how we can feel that we are doing our bit uh, towards it. It doesn't have to be big, it can be small. And uh, so we need to in, in empower and enable people to do the little things. And then as a community, we've got to get on and do the big things. Is that what happened to your family, Malcolm? I think we, we have to acknowledge that this is not a, a planet or a science problem, it's a human problem that we have now. Like we've, we, we have full ownership of this and, and we've acknowledged that 10 years ago. And you know, we're on a path to, to fix that and to regenerate it and try and lead out in terms of voice and community. And I think that's what we need to do. It, it really does take very clear, strong leadership, setting targets, but, but also putting actions in place and, and also understanding the counterbalance of moving too strongly in one direction. But you know, if, you, if you think about regeneration as, as touching all of the aspects that we're talking about, you know, I think that should be the main theme, uh, reducing emissions and, and building um, you know, planet health back. I think we have to also go back a lot further than that and, and listen to, to country and, and understand how uh, Australia in particular was uh, really healthy before 1788 as well. I think there's a lot of learning and education that needs to happen there as well. And that's a movement that I get the feeling is, is very much underway. It's, it's underneath a lot of this, the talk about fire, in particular with the shocking bushfires of recent years. And, and this notion, the rejection of terra nullius and the, the fact that the Australian landscape has for 60,000 years been being managed by people to, to varying degrees and that it was managed very productively for a very long time. Yeah. And there's a bit of buggering it up to use that term that's gone on in the last couple of hundred years that we've got to 
Well, I think it's the, the mindset that I was talking about before is that that's a very ancient, organic mindset. Mm. Uh, we've, we've sort of moved into this more mechanical, you know, productivity mm. mindset. And if somehow we can repair that um, and reconcile and learn from each other, we might be talking about a, an emergent mindset uh, and, a, and a starting point to go well, forward. Let's see if we can finish on a positive note. Mm. Graziella, anything that excites you, something that, that is really exciting, perhaps from your students or something that you can see looming on the horizon? And I'm, any of you ha have got anything? I don't want to put you on the spot, Graziella, but... Oh, well, I, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Probably about oh. five minutes between all of you. I'm looking to see, but... Yeah. I can talk about exciting things all day. I think, I think that I am very excited about the possibility of using those, these nature-based solutions. I'm very excited about the research um, that we are uh, doing uh, and how we can help resolve big issues. I'm very excited about the students that are coming through to, to Flinders and um, we are doing very important and very exciting work. One of these uh, is the, the network of wave boys that we put in the in Gulf St. Vincent. So I'm very excited. This is being a, like a milestone of my life. <laughs> a big dream. Yeah, it was a big dream. So to, what do they do, the wave boys? So they are sitting in the, in the Gulf, in the, in the ocean. So uh, one is offshore Semaphore Beach, one is 5K offshore Brighton, and then there's another one in Investigator Strait. And so they are measuring wave heights, direction, and period. They've been measuring for a year now. So we are trying to build this long-term record so someone in 20, 30 years can analyze the data and see if there is long-term change that can be associated with climate change, the changes in extreme events. And we know that the projection is that the Southern Ocean is going to increase in wave energy, but what's happening in the Gulf? We don't know yet. So I'm excited about this. I'm excited about the partnerships that we have here in South Australia, not only Flinders, but with SARDI, the Department of Environment and Water, SA Water and, and the EPAs. We're doing a lot of work together to, to educate students, to bring more PhDs, more research into the, into the state because uh, uh, we need to catch up with, with our neighbors in terms of data collection, observations, research and study. So um, I can see a very bright future for South Australia on that. Mm -hmm. We've got a question on that issue. Some young people are choosing not to have children. This is a very negative thing uh, because they believe it'll amplify global warming. Um, with the positivity from Graziella, are you confident about your world, Malcolm, bringing children into it? Everything I do is about children yeah. you know, each day. You know, we're trying to um, have a next generational thinking about what we're doing, I'm excited to be part of um, the SA innovation and drive towards a, hopefully a net zero um, economy here. And uh, I think what we've learned, if we look at the other crisis that we're in currently, a lot of people have been telling me that they just are so happy and feel so lucky to be living here. And I think if we think about children, that's the sort of environment that we want to bring them up in. So some more positivity, Cassandra. Well, um, so positivity, I think one of the things or excitement, yes, that I would be excited about is that the breadth of the conversation that we've had really shows the importance of bringing together different kinds of research. So from the scientific, the ecological, uh, the economic, 
but also the social and the cultural in, in crafting climate solutions that will give us that better tomorrow. And I think that is so important uh, in the work that we do and that I do with Graziella and mm. all of the researchers at Flinders. So that integration mm. between science, pure research, mm. application, environmental activism in a a growing industry, not just going out there and planting trees willy-nilly, but applying it to an industry that is growing. Yeah. Peter, town planning background, how important is that policy though from government? Oh, it's, it's uh, sets the framework, uh, guides the conversation, gives investment certainty, which has been a strength of South Australia when we look at renewable energy. Mm -hmm. So uh, most people would understand that, you know, Australia, South Australia is a, a global leader in that energy transition or transformation mm -hmm. from, you know, 15 years, 1% to 68% renewable on our grid and uh, you know racing towards that hundred percent now when we speak of children I mean I, I've, I have children and what excites me as manager of future industries is the opportunities that this creates we I said before we have what the world needs clean energy so there's you know if we look at the last hundred years the eastern states had an abundance of coal and we had Lee Creek coal, which was not good coal. No, it wasn't good coal. <laughs> we, we are within, the, the future is about water and energy in terms of industrial productivity. Mm -hmm. And if we apply that renewable energy to do good with it, um, we to green hydrogen, all of these things, we have an enormous opportunity for our families and for our children. Um, and we look at, say, the, the government's green hydrogen, the jobs plan. Uh, and we look at that as a moon mission. Um, it's 250 megawatt of electrolyzer. That all of last year, the world only installed 240 megawatts. We look at 200 um, uh, megawatts of uh, fuel cells. Um, again, it's globally significant. We look at 3,600 tonnes of storage of hydrogen. NASA is the largest, I understand at the moment, with 1,000 tonnes at Cape Canaveral. So we're talking moon mission here. Uh, and we look at the supply chain, we look at the technology, the innovation that can come out of uh, our university sector and Australia's um, industry to fix those problems. I met this morning with uh, Weld Australia, uh, who are the welding, the peak body for welding. Um, and we mentioned nuclear before, but welding for hydrogen is, the, they're saying needs the same level of skill that if you're welding a complex alloy for a nuclear part, you need the same skill to weld for hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about really high skill jobs that mean that the, the, the opportunities for our community are huge. So off of that project, we build skills, expertise, we, our education system researches it. It's, it's not just a single industrial mm -hmm. plant. Mm -hmm. it's, it's what we make of it. Okay, another question here. Noticing the rise of support for the Greens and other independents in recent elections, is climate and the environment becoming a more prevalent issue that the public is concerned about and do the major parties need to do more? So this goes to that question of is politics leading or is it being dragged by the nose into the, into the area? What do you think, Cassandra? You're our politics person. <laughs> Well, is politics leading? I think if we look at the last decade, it hasn't been. And that probably connects strongly with those feelings about climate grief that some of the current generation have. You know, they've gone through a decade where we had no climate legislation and no effective policy either. Mm -hmm. um, the, the changing support to the Teal Independents and the Greens 
has they've taken support from both the Labor and the Liberal parties. So I think both major parties would be thinking very carefully about what their climate platform would be like going forward. Um, and I know we've seen with the, the Liberal Party in particular, um, from the current parliamentary party, very little shift there. However, we've seen a strong recognition with the, the young Liberals mm -hmm. that the, the climate stance was very problematic. Mm -hmm. So I think for both parties, there's a certain amount of soul searching going on, even for um, the, the current Albanese government, even though they won, they have lost, you know, certain um, vote sectors yes. because of their positioning. So there is hope. That's what I'm hearing from all four of you. I'm seeing people who are active in the site and in the space and in a, as you pointed out, Cassandra, in a broad uh, range of fields, but intersecting with each other and creating solutions that we can only hope get the support of our political leaders and, and take us into the future. We're running very rapidly out of time. So thank you to each and every one of you for joining us here today. Peter Natras from the Department for Energy and Mining, Associate Professor Cassandra Starr, um, Malcolm Leesk from Hither and Yon, and I'm sure he'll enjoy telling you all about his fabulous products for those of you in the room here today. And as well, uh, Dr. Graziella Miot da Silva, who's talked to us about, um, in particular, coastal issues. I'd also like to thank our audience who's joined us here today uh, for your interest in the Fearless uh, Conversations event. And remember, keep the conversation going on Twitter using the Fearless Conversations hashtag. In our last uh, Fearless Conversations, Flinders will soon be launching an exciting new initiative to engage future fearless leaders through the conversations uh, from our next generation competition. So that would be a very exciting initiative with young people being involved in these sorts of conversations to get a different perspective as well. High school students years seven to 12 are to submit a one minute video fearlessly discussing a topic that matters to them. That will be fascinating viewing. Three winners will be invited to join a panel, then to present their ideas at Adelaide Town Hall in September as part of our flagship event, the Investigative, uh, Investigator Lecture. And there are also some great prizes. So if you know some young people who would be interested in getting involved in that, encourage them greatly. Keep an eye out for more details in the advertiser. That's how they'll be able to enter. You'll be able to watch this session on the Flinders YouTube channel or Flinders University's Fearless Conversations webpage. And we hope you can join us for the next time. But for the time being, from all of us here, thank you very much for your attention and have a great day.